One question that I wanted to ask is, you had mentioned that you were working while you were flipping and also while you were being a realtor. So if I understand correctly, you had a full-time job on Bay Street at the same time you were a realtor, at the same time you were flipping. How did you manage doing all that at the same time? Well, I wasn't married. Welcome to the Deals Estate Wholesaling Podcast, where we discuss finding, financing, and facilitating off-market real estate deals. I'm your host, Didier Dunton, and I'm joined today on the show by Thomas Pobojewski to discuss and share his knowledge on the biggest risk that wholesalers are not considering in today's market. A little bit about Tom. He's an experienced flipper who has done multiple deals across the GTA. Tom and his team do about 20 to 30 flips per year. Previously, before he got into real estate, he worked as a chartered accountant for one of the big four firms. He has also worked with various Canadian business leaders from multiple Fortune 500 companies. Tom's philosophy is providing his investors with a one-stop shop approach and ensuring that his transactions are carried out smoothly and in an ethical manner. In today's episode, Tom and I discuss, as I mentioned earlier, the most overlooked risk that wholesalers need to do more due diligence on. We also discuss the best and worst experience that he's had with wholesalers. And finally, we discuss how he partners with wholesalers when buying off-market deals. So you do not want to miss this episode, so be sure to listen to the very end. Before we dive in, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who is tuning into this episode. If you are a fan of this podcast, hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. We would also appreciate a five-star review. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Tuesday Estate Wholesaling Podcast. Hey, DG. Thanks for having me. Super excited. Thank you very much you know, for coming on, and um, thank you for being patient. I know you and I have been looking to schedule this episode for the longest time, but I'm more than excited to be having this call with you today. Yeah, me too. You finally answered my call and uh, we're here today, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so I did a bit of background at the start of the episode, but it's always helpful for people to get to know who we're speaking with. So if you could take it off, let us know who you are, um, who is Tom, and uh, yeah, just take it off from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so for your audience there, my name is Tom Polievsky. So as, as you mentioned, I was a chartered accountant that worked downtown on Bay Street. I didn't really like corporate life. And sure enough, I started investing in real estate as a side hustle back in, I want to say about 2009, 2010. So wow. what I was doing was I was flipping properties uh, as a side hustle on top of my day job. And then one thing led to another. I got my realtor's license. I started selling properties, both to investors and end users. And by 20, I think it was by 2011, uh, things really started to pick up in my realtor business and uh, decided to quit and became a full-time real estate agent where uh, right now I run a sales team. We do upwards of about 150 transactions per year, helping investors, end users buy, sell, invest in real estate. Um, and one of my primary strategies is actually fix and flip and long-term buy and holds. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. 
Now, it's very interesting. I, I know a lot of people would want to understand what the differences are between flipping in 2023 or 2022 and flipping in 2010. You know, do you see any major differences between the times? You know, one of the big differences, of course, is like the pricing that we're working <laughs> with. I mean, uh, the transaction costs. I mean, give you an idea. Okay, DG, like my first flip was uh, I bought it for about just shy of about 100 grand and I sold it for 180. And this is a townhouse in Mississauga. Whoa, so, whoa, whoa. Yeah, and it still managed to to make about 25K off of that flip because, again, the transaction costs were far lower. Yep. Now, nowadays, obviously, prices are a lot more. So the spread between what you buy and what you sell has to be that much of a difference for you to cover your transaction costs. So that's probably an obvious thing. Yep. But one of the other things, too, is interesting is like I didn't come across off-market or wholesaling until about, I want to say, 2017, 2018 or so. That's okay. when I was first introduced to it. Like I knew about it in the States. And then it wasn't until I, I found somebody that was in that space in Canada. And uh, when I bought something with him, I, I said to him, I was like, I didn't know this existed. And he kind of chuckled and said the same thing. He goes, I didn't know either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so are you able to share you know, who that person is? Um, potentially maybe the first person to do wholesaling in Canada. Well, I don't know if he was the first person to, per se, but I'd say it's the it's a person that has definitely uh, brought a lot of uh, of wholesaling to Canada. It was Luke Boyron. Okay. Yes. Wow. Okay, that's good. And that was what year? I want to say it was about 2017, 2018, give or take. Okay. Yeah. Like 2018 probably is the first time. And again, it was not, not the concept I understood, but the thing was, Quite honestly, being a realtor, when I meet with a lot of sellers, usually they always want to sell for more than the property is worth. And yeah. meanwhile, there's this off-market channel where people will sell at a discount, which was the concept was uh, foreign to me at the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so that's about seven years ago. That's interesting. Okay, so you've been investing for upwards of 10 plus years, been buying off market properties for about six to seven years. Um, how would you say your preference for flipping has evolved? Would you say that's still your primary strategy today? Yeah. So, I mean, I, my, I have two primary strategies and I call it my long game and my short game. My short game is flipping. So that's, as you could, as it implies, short game is basically buy, renovate, sell in about a three to six month time frame. And then I use that capital to buy long-term assets excuse me, that are more wealth builders. And, and those are predominantly single-family, duplexes, triplexes, small multifamilies is what I pretty much focused on. And, I just, and then what I would do is I would refinance those properties, take the equity out in lines of credit, and I would buy a flip property. So I would finance my flipping operation, my short game, using long-term assets, and it would go in this circle over time. And quite truthfully, I've never sold any of my long-term uh, assets at all. They've all I've kept them throughout the whole time. Um, meanwhile, I've been flipping properties uh, every year since, right? So it's 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 two different strategies, two different models, yep. but they coincide with each other. Okay. 
One question that I wanted to ask is, you had mentioned that you were working while you were flipping and also while you were being a realtor. So if I understand correctly, you had a full-time job on Bay Street at the same time you were a realtor, at the same time you were flipping. How did you manage doing all that at the same time? Well, I wasn't married for starters. (laughs) So I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I I did take my girlfriend with me, who's now my wife, on these real estate expeditions. But I was just motivated, DG. Like I just wanted to find a way to get ahead financially. And I first tried the stock market, right? That was uh, that yep. was the thing. I said, okay, let's try stock market. I read every book, started investing. And then in 2008, everything imploded uh, yep. as far as the Wall Street was concerned. And and then sure enough, I, um, I give you a bit more background is my father is actually a realtor as well, some second generation. And he introduced me to this concept oh. of flipping. So that was kind of like my stepping stone. And then I realized that I can actually do this as a side hustle because one of my one of my things in, in flipping is I don't really get my hands dirty as far as renovations are concerned. I'm more of the idea guy, meaning I'm there to identify properties, underwrite them, find the teams, put it together, and then sell the property without doing painting myself. I mean, without putting yeah. hardwood floors. I'm not good with that stuff whatsoever. If, if you looked at my hands, you wouldn't see a callus on them, quite honestly. <laughs> okay, perfect. No, but it's actually interesting that you are sharing this because I wanted everyone who's listening to understand the context of your experience because having flipped properties for the past 10 plus years, you've also come across multiple wholesalers, right? Across those um, years that you've been investing. What would you say has changed, you know, between the first time you bought a wholesale deal in, I think, 2017, you said, and now with the new wholesalers that are coming up, um, you know, since then, how has, has that industry changed? Well, I, I, I mean, speaking to wholesalers, uh, they've seen a lot more competition. I mean, that's just natural that when someone makes an inroad, people take notice and they want to create their own business in that space. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I've noticed. Uh, as far as that's concerned, um, and I'm also when I'm speaking with wholesalers, they're looking for different ways to 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 provide additional services. Like some of them are providing renovation services, some are providing financing, um, some are trying to partner with real estate agents to try to sell some of their properties. So I, I think uh, it, it first started off with just I've got a deal and I'm looking to assign it, and now yep. it's like, well, how do I find multiple exits? How do I partner with people? Uh, how do I kind of provide additional services so that yeah. I can remain relevant. Yeah, yeah. That's actually very inspired, insightful because I've seen quite a number of wholesalers who have partnered with construction companies where they would say, okay, if you buy this deal, we would give you a rebate on, on the construction, right? Because quite a, a number of the deals that a wholesaler would send out would be deals that require renovations, right? So a lot of them have partnered with renovation companies. So. That's definitely a very interesting strategy. Um, yeah, and I think also the one thing is with, with with the wholesalers, again, is how do you deal with those market cycles, especially the one that we just dealt with in 2021? Um, a lot, you know, people are making money on the way up, but then when you have a market shift, all of a sudden, um, it's the experience. How do those wholesalers adapt to the changing market? And it's been interesting to see how, I'll give you one example. I know one one of them has said, well, if no one wants to buy my product, then I will renovate myself and flip it, right? Yep. Because so, so they started to do that. They started to basically get creative so that they can weather the storm 
Yep. And then basically uh, go about once the market cycle changes, they can go about it in a different manner. Yeah, that, that's also something that I experienced. I would say when I came in um, in 2021, towards the middle end of 2021, we were in the bull market. So a lot of my experiences and expectations were shipped you know, by the bull market. And last, like since last year, you know, I've had to like just think through ways to, as we were discussing before this call, just think through ways to differentiate myself as well, right? Um, as we move through this interesting time, as I usually call it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've been flipping for a couple of years. Um, there's one concern that I know that is prevalent amongst wholesalers, which is um, closing. You know, you have a deal. Um, as you mentioned, a couple of wholesalers would send out deals. No one is buying it. But when people buy or when buyers buy, you essentially want to be confident that that deal will close. So from your standpoint, um, given that you've been flipping for a very long time, you've worked with multiple wholesalers, how do you as a buyer you know, build relationships with wholesalers, provide them the needed you know, comfort that you know, you'd be able to close on the deal? They don't have to worry. Um, how do you sort of think through that? I mean, yeah, it's a great question, right? Something that I'm, I focus on is building relationships with people because that will go a long way in terms of make, even getting sometimes a little bit of preferential treatment, right? Yep. If, they, if they're working, if someone is working with someone they know versus don't know, you probably will give the benefit of the doubt with a familiar face at the end of the day, sure. right? So how do you, your question is, how do you create that? Uh, there's a few ways, right? One is... Um, Knowing, uh, understanding what you're getting yourself into. So if you can walk the walk and talk the talk, uh, a wholesaler should be able to understand whether this person knows what they're talking about, right? So here's a great example is do you understand how, how the financing works on an assignment deal, right? Do you understand that you may or may not be able to finance that assignment fee? And if it's large, that may impact your financing, right? So if you can articulate that to somebody, to a, let's say a new a wholesaler you haven't worked with before, they start to think, okay, this guy knows his stuff all of a sudden, right? Yep. Um, also, quite honestly, sometimes you have to even just name drop a few guys, right? <laughs> Seriously, like you, there's there's so few players out there and they all kind of know each other. And, and, and quite honestly, if you're working with someone, say, hey, I've worked with X, Y, and Z before, and you can call them up and they'll tell you their experience working with me. Right. Well, that's, oh, that's, that's, one, that's one way. That's another way to do it. Uh, the third is just, you know, show them, show them the money. Uh, meaning you may, if you are buying cash or credit line, you can show them, for example, Hey, here's my bank statement, right. Without revealing okay. maybe some, some uh, account details, yep. but you may want to also show them the proof of funds, basically that, Hey, you can close on this deal. Perfect. And then it comes, so that's when you're not working with someone, let's say you work with someone in the past and it's all of a sudden your track record. Hey, how are you with closing? Are you easy to deal with? Do you close on time or do you give people problems, right? Those have become really important for, for when you're working with, with somebody on the other side, right? Everyone wants a smooth and easy transaction because I've talked to a lot of wholesalers where they've called me after the fact that the deal goes sour. And, some, and I'll ask them, like, well, what are you going to do with that person going forward? They said, we're just going to cut them loose. <laughs> we're just not going to do business with them anymore because they've lost confidence in that individual, right? Yeah. So there's been times that, um, like, uh, just to your point, after an engagement with someone, I took the person off the list, right? Because as you said, right, it, you are putting yourself in a position where you've committed to 
the seller and then you assign the deal and the deal doesn't go through, then you also lose credibility with the seller. It just makes it harder for you to do business with that seller. Um, and also just the fact that you've lost that deal. So um, from my end as well, another thing that I've noticed is I usually would be open to giving a rebate on the price or a rebate on the deposits, you know, if, as you mentioned, the, the conversations go well. So recently there was a deal that we assigned and it was $15,000. We had another offer and the offer was 40,000, right? So we had two offers. One was 40,000, the second one was 15. The buyer who was offering 40,000, so just a bit of context, when he initially um, said he wanted to buy the deal for about one whole week, I couldn't reach him. So it's like, okay, you want to buy the deal, but I can't reach you for a week. And then on the day of the walkthrough, he messages me and says he's available. I'm like, oh, where have you been? And then he does the walkthrough, says he's interested, makes the offer. And then I try to reach him for the next day. Like I'm literally trying to assign the deal and I can't reach him. So I'm like, you know what? Like, it's a very interesting wholesale fee. But again, going through that process, not being able to reach the person who's buying your deal from, you know, it, it isn't the circus you want to go through, right? So yeah. the other person who offered a $15,000 wholesale fee was very forthcoming. Like I would call the person, he would answer. And it's been a very pleasant experience. So it's obviously painful when you look at the cash value of what you lose, but it's not necessarily what you lose. It's the fact that end-to-end process is seamless. So I think that, that's my own experience. I would usually give rebates um, on, on the deposit or, or the price on the assignment fee, you know, if there's that confidence that the deal would close. Yeah, you make a great point. One thing you said was responsiveness of the party that you're dealing with. I mean, that is so important when someone can offer you the courtesy of a callback, right? Like, the, I, I, they don't ghost you for like a week. Like, that's just not <laughs> professional at the end of the day. And that's the thing, too, is like I've had some wholesalers call me and say, we don't have this under contract, Tom, but we're thinking about it. We want to offer to you potentially. Here's some of the details. Can you get back to us in one or two hours or by the afternoon with your thoughts on it? And I'll yep. say, OK, yes, I'll take down the details. I'll do my research and and then I'll get back to them, say I like it or I don't or I like it if we can do this. Yeah, right? I don't yeah. leave them. I don't leave them hang uh, high and dry per se. At least often the courtesy of the callback. Hundred percent. You just touched on the points. The trust level can get to a point where even before having the deal under contract, then you know you actually bring the buyer you know to, into the picture because right? there's always concerns that from new wholesalers. Um, at what point do I share this deal with the buyers? If I shared it on too early, the person can go. You know, behind me, reach out to the seller, try to lock it up. And honestly, it still happens today. But I think, as you rightly pointed out, when there's trust and, you know, there's the confidence that, okay, this deal will close, even if it's not under contract, you could actually work with the buyer to find the right price. So as you said, right, you, you get the benefits of the credibility that you've built where you get preferred pricing. So if, for example, um, and this has happened before where, for example, if, if a deal is going to be locked up at a hundred thousand, and you know I come to you and say, "Hey Tom, you know how much would you buy this for?" You could give me a price, and then I'll take that amount and I'll anchor the conversation with the seller. So I did it in in a deal that we assigned about a month and a half ago, where we, we 
I forget the price we had it on that contract. I think it was about 300. And then I asked the buyer how much they wanted to pay. And they told me the price and I took that amount and I went back to the seller to negotiate and say, you know what, we can go from on this deal. It has to be at this price. So that was a case where there was confidence in the buyer and also in the, in, in the buyer closing. And then just giving the buyer that, you know, leeway to say, you know, well, how much do you want to pay? And then I would go back to the seller with that number and get that price for you. So, yeah, it's a great story, right? It's just being able to work with people that you trust. No, they're not going to so-called cut you out of a deal, but then you can make a, a smooth transaction with with uh, with the with both sides, essentially the seller and your buyer. Yeah. So, all all through your experience, you've you've probably had good and bad experiences, right? Um, you've built relationships with wholesalers. If you were to name maybe one or two experiences, well, I'd say one experience that probably was on the positive side. Another one on the not so positive side. You know, what would those be? I think it's helpful for people to understand from a buyer's perspective. You know, what what are those things that they should watch out for when engaging with private buyers? Yeah, yeah. You know what? Um, integrity is really important to me, right? Like, say what you're going to do, honor your word. I mean, they may kind of be, you know, kind of cheesy lines, but it, it means a lot to me when someone can honor a commitment, whether in writing or not. And I'll tell you a story, DG. I was uh, working. With, uh, with a new wholesaler or someone introduced to me a deal. It was, uh, I recall, in Hamilton. I'm not going to drop names. That's not the type of guy I am, but just for context, yeah. it was in Hamilton and it was a pretty good deal from what I can tell. I was very familiar with the property. And sure enough, I rang the wholesaler, asked him a few questions and so forth. And he says, well, you know what? Um, we're, we're open to sight unseen offers if you, if you provide one. I said, okay, great. So I called back one of my partners and I said, here's the scoop. What do you think? Sh- should we go and see it? Should we not? And he says, you know what? Put a sight unseen offer. Let's see if he'll accept it. Yep. The site, so I, I approached it again, called the wholesaler back. I said, listen, I've got a sight unseen offer for you. It's 350000 You don't have to even bother showing it to anybody as is, where is condition. We're comfortable with the property as is. He, he starts thinking about it. Okay, you know what? Let me call my partner. Let me call my partner. I said, okay, great. Yeah, for sure. Check with your partner. I get the call back from that individual. He says, you know what? We got a deal. We got a deal. Like verbatim. Yeah. He said, great. I will prepare the paperwork from my end. We'll have this done and deposit to you by tomorrow. Not an issue. Sure enough, 10 minutes later, that wholesaler's partner calls me. Not the guy I'm talking to, but his partner calls me and says, Tom, uh, you know what? We just got a call and another guy wants to offer offer us $10,000 more for that property. I'm like, I'm like, okay. And well, just to be fair to you, we are going to give you the opportunity to match that offer. And I was like, excuse okay. me. Uh, that's not the conversation I had. My conversation I had, we had a deal at 350. He goes, yeah, but uh, things have changed. Uh, you no. Know, and he starts getting defensive, like, what would you do if you were me and so forth? I said, I would honor my word, like, simple as that. Like, he goes, well, it is what it is. And we went back and forth on this for about five or 10 minutes. I said, listen, just take me off your list. I'm not doing business with you guys ever again. End the story. Again, because someone couldn't honor their word. And they, when they said they couldn't, they were going to do it, but backed up. I said, I'm not doing business with these guys uh, going forward. And that's, this was a first time or it was maybe a fly-by-nighter. Perhaps yeah. this was the first deal and $10,000 meant a lot to them. And it is a lot of money. But granted, I think integrity is is definitely uh, more important than anything. 
especially relationships, because those guys don't understand that I'm, I don't buy one property a year. I'm probably buying upwards of 20 or 30 properties per year. Yeah. Yeah. So you make a very fine point. And honestly, I would say that maybe it's a fine line and, you know, it will be good to share your expectations on like what you consider as a commitment. Cause I think for some people, the commitment is when the contract is signed. While for others, the commitment is verbal. So I think there was a deal that I did where I was having a conversation with the buyer. And for me, I, I probably did not express it very clearly that it's when I said, it's, it's when I ask you for your lawyer's details and like, you know, the details of what's going on the contract. That's when we have a deal. You know, like I'm having a conversation with you. I'm asking you questions, qualifying you. You know, you tell me the price that you want to pay. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll think about it. You know, like, you know, I think it's 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 helpful from my own standpoint because it's a learning that I'm taking from this call to be very clear to say, okay, we have a deal. And at this point in time, I wouldn't be working with anyone. I think from that last call, that's what I took because when I told the lady that I was going with someone else, she, she said, well, I thought we had a deal. I was like, oh no, we were just having the qualification call. I was asking you questions um, and I mentioned that I was going to speak with my partner. But after speaking with yourself and another person, um, you know, I would be going with the other person because, you know, like I feel more confident that this other person would close. Um, so I think there's some nuances there, but we'd just like to get your thoughts on, you know, if that approach also would, Turned you off as a buyer, you know. Um, would you need wholesalers to be clearer, you know, in 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 the due diligence process, or yeah, just want to get thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, you're gonna have some, you know, variations of conversations. But if I say, "Hey, we've got a deal," and you say, "Yeah, we've got a deal. We're moving forward." Great, that's that's a deal, right? In my world, um, again, there may be some subtleties. Like, let me check on my partner. I get that, you know, it looks okay, but I, I let me double check something. You know, that's not a deal per se, but to yeah. your point, legally, it's not in writing. It's not a deal. I get that part. So for me, though, if, if someone says, hey, um, we got a deal, we're not going to be doing business with anyone else. That's that's to me, in my mind, a deal like that's something that someone should honor at the end of the day. Yep. Yeah. OK. Fair enough. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would ask, you know, what your best experience is, but, you know, I guess with wholesaling, as long as you make money, it's a very good experience. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, I can just say, like, my favorite wholesale deals, and I'm sure your audience will appreciate, you know, I have something called a wholetail, yep. which essentially is something, it's, a, it's a, essentially you bought something, you closed on it, and you did very minimal work, let's say under $10,000, and you make a good chunk of money. Um those are my favorite by far, and I'm sure no one would disagree with that statement. But I, I'll, I'll give you like an example here, DG. You know, one of my one of my recent experiences, I, I purchased a detached home from a wholesaler for 1.1 million. Okay, this it year, this year in late January, early February. Okay, it was a one week close. They had multiple people interested in buying it, but the key was you had to close in a week. 1.1 million dollars okay okay and uh, i actually didn't see the property but i saw pictures saw photos videos i'm very familiar with the area and um it was in pretty good shape like not a lot of work okay closed on it 
I had my guys in there. We spent maybe ten or 15000 on paint and some flooring, just spruced it up, like just freshen it up, right? Nothing major. <laughs> Put it on the market in February, and I'm thinking my ARV is about $1.26 million, give or take. This is what I'm th- projecting, $1,260,000. Remember, I bought it for one point one. I must have just caught a lucky break. There was nothing on the market. It was a long weekend on family day and at 13 offers, sold it for 1,350,000. So you're looking at like literally a difference of $250,000 from something that was just purchased with very minimal investment. Again, those are... um, those are not everyday transactions for me, but if you're thinking about good, good deals or, or good experience with wholesalers, that is, that is a fantastic experience in my view. Okay. Okay. So this is a deal that on the, on the buyer side, you'd be like, Whoa! on the wholesaler, on the wholesaler side, you'd be like, wow. <laughs> well, hold on a second. The wholesaler though. Okay. In fairness, the wholesaler, I paid him a hundred thousand dollars for that property. Okay. That's- so now that's, very interesting to you know to point out because um we've had questions on this podcast where it was a case where the wholesaler was sharing the experience of the wholesale fee being small and then the the buyer making an outsized profit well it's actually interesting that it was a win-win in, in this case right so the wholesaler made yeah, six, figures. six figures for the wholesaler and six figures for the investor i think that everyone can can be happy with that <laughs> yeah that's definitely a win-win-win win-win-win-win-win <laughs> Okay, so have you seen any differences between buying off market and buying on the MLS? You are a realtor, you know, that's where you um, do a lot of your operations, but you buy a lot from the MLS, I believe. You also buy from wholesalers. Like, do you see a difference in how those transactions typically work across both platforms? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the one thing about, remember, being a realtor is that we do have um, a specific, like, we're regulated. So we have a code. So let's say if I'm buying um, off market, if I'm not going through wholesalers privately, like there's obviously additional disclosures required, which are fine. I would normally have them go with a lawyer because I want to make sure that that person gets their own representation at the end of the day, whether it is another agent or their own lawyer, at least so that they have been properly guided. Right. Whereas if it's just a private individual, they don't have that same sort of um requirement i would say yeah um but what i would say like because like off market is is unregulated whereas on market is more regulated so there's just additional um rules you got to follow and so forth Uh, so let's kind of break them down i mean one thing is off market less competition um the thing is sometimes you're dealing with people that need a little bit more hand holding in the process Yep. Uh, especially from the seller side of things, they may not know. So you want to make sure you're you're you're, you're hand holding them properly, right? Whereas yep. on an MLS deal, they're usually represented by someone, so that person's guiding them. They have their own independent representation, right? That's that's a big thing. Um, as far as also just the off market uh, off market channel, um, you might again find some better deals out there because it doesn't, it doesn't have the same exposure at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, usually there are quicker closings involved. Usually the properties are not in great condition as well, whereas the stuff on the MLS has been spruced up for purposes of sale, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, those are some of, I would say, the the differences that, that you're, you have to kind of consider when you're going in, in those two, uh, two different channels. Okay. 
as a buyer who also happens to be a realtor, like, do you find that when buying off-market deals as a realtor, do you find that they, you, you are in a more advantageous position than another private buyer who is in a realtor? Um, I think the one advantage, one is, I mean, there's a few advantages. One is like, I'm familiar with the paperwork, right? So I know the process, <laughs> the paperwork helps. So I understand how to guide a deal, right? I know how to, I know how to handhold the deal. Um, the other advantage will be information advantage, right? Yeah. And you've got the MLS, you've got additional resources on your side. I mean, these days there's a lot of public information, but still the stuff that we have as realtors is like, you know, there, you've got like Yahoo Finance versus Bloomberg, right? Yeah. Bloomberg being a much more robust system. So that's what we've got at our disposal, right? To kind of look up properties. But then again, there's a lot of that public information as well. Um, so those are some of the things that come top of mind as, you're, as you ask that question. Okay. In terms of markets, I know that from a realtor standpoint, um, you largely serve clients in the GTA, I would imagine. Do you also constrain your investing on the wholesaling side? And I, you know I mean, like buying wholesale deals, do you constrain that to the GTA as well? Or are you open to investing in other markets outside of the GTA? I'm definitely open. Like I, like I, I have done flips in waterloo i've done kitchener i've done cambridge i've done hamilton um mainly the constraint sometimes is well two constraints one is market knowledge yeah. i think if you're flipping especially you want to understand that market pretty darn well it's it's it will go beyond just what you see on a on a on a, on a computer screen yep and the other thing too is like your your team meaning yep. like your contractors are they willing to go to those areas or do you have to develop a new team which of course will be constrained. And, and as I was talking to another flipper who does a lot of uh, out of town stuff, the more further you go out, the less control you have over the situation. You have to rely upon someone to give you feedback. That is. Whereas obviously something more local, you can, you can drive past it. You can do a walkthrough and make sure things are, are up to snuff. Right. So there's that control aspect. Um, one thing I would say is I've been exploring more out of town. Like I just picked up something in Owen Sound right yep. now. And um, that's that's a new market for me. Um, having said that, uh, when I'm talking to some investors, they're saying to me, you know what? The GTA is saturated. The margins are thinner. And, and we should consider getting outside your comfort zone. So I'm exploring these kind of more tertiary markets to, get, to get additional uh, gains, basically, in margin. Yeah. So the reason why I ask that is I'm sure I've caught a number of wholesalers, you know, would want to understand where you buy, right? In case they have just that they want to send to you. Um, with every new buyer that you come across that, you know, shows confidence, closes, you know, does deals, you always want to, you know, get in front of that buyer just ensure that you, you put your deals in front of them. Yeah. Like I know uh, some guys that are kicking butt in like Chatham, right? They're yeah. buying homes for fraction of the price of GTA and making similar um, dollars on, on every flip. And it's just like, gets you thinking, you're like, well, maybe I should try Chatham. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine, I imagine that the deal that you shared, which is the hotel deal was in the GTA. What market was it in? The, which one was that one? The, the one I mentioned about the 1.1 million. Correct. That, that was in Markham of all places. Okay. Okay. So, well, Markham would consider GTA as well. 
Yeah, we've also got GTA as well, I guess. Yep, that's that. Yep, that's that's part of it. I mean, GTA is pretty large, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, cool then. So, I would say, you know, it, you did a hotel about one point one million. You had to close in one week. Um, from a wholesaling standpoint, you know, there's quite a number of, of of things that I would need to think about. You know, you as a buyer, there are a lot of things you need to think about. When going through that hotel deal, were you at any time concerned that the quick closing was going to put you at any sort of risk? Um, you know, you know, sometimes buyers would want longer closings for them to do a lot of due diligence, but you had to close in a week, 1.1 million. So it was high price, short closing. Um, what was going to your mind when closing that deal? Truthfully? <laughs> the biggest thing I was thinking about at the time was whether this was a bona fide real deal. Okay. Meaning that was the seller really the true seller? Because there were some red flags on that deal that um, w- that would le- lend to believe that perhaps this was a case of uh, misrep- uh, fraud, essentially, by okay. a seller. Okay. Um, and the reason is, uh, DG is actually a few weeks before that deal in January, I had an experience where I was a victim of fraud on another wholesale deal, uh, okay. which I, I'm happy, you know, I can kind of share with you some context, right? Yeah. Um, so, that. yeah. So just to give you an idea, right? So uh, this is mid January and I'm sure you heard the story about fake sellers selling properties yeah. on the MLS and, uh, running away with the cash, right? Yeah. Well, I had a, I had an, uh, that's something happened like that to me where a, a wholesaler that I do a lot of business with, mind you, many, many transactions with introduced to me a property. We went to go see it in person. Okay. We saw, we went inside of it, everything like that. Um, there was stuff inside. No one was living in it, but there was stuff inside that led you to believe someone was living there. Yep. And um, we decided to put an offer and, but it needed a very short closing. Uh, very short closing. Um, the other thing too was that uh, the seller, from what I understood, was uh, n- English was not their first language, so they were using a relative to help them negotiate their side of the transaction. Okay. Um, so sure enough, we 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 bought the place, and then I get a call about a week later, about a few days later, that hey, this is a case of fraud. That this person who's saying they're the seller is not actually the seller. That this was completely fraudulent. And I was just like blown away completely. I was just like, oh my God, like this is just unbelievable. What's, what's going to happen with the money, right? Like I was freaking out. There's, there's so many questions that are going through my head right now, but I'll let you land. <laughs> well, here's the thing, DG. It, it closed, okay? It closed, but the, the, the fraudster didn't get their money because they were stopped by the bank at the very last second. They were actually apprehended as they were grabbing the check from the bank. Woo! Whoa! <laughs> so like, literally, the lawyers literally like the an lawyers, action movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's honestly unbelievable because, and it's in it's in the again, you can it's online too. But the story goes that the they close the deal virtually with a lawyer, so everything's fine. They check their IDs, whatever they do, and then they open up a bank account with a fraudulent uh, piece of ID, a PR card that wasn't valid, and the bank caught it and they said, "Hey, come pick up your check." All three of them came, pick up the check. Oh, wow. And the cops were just waiting for them. Okay, so 
it was the bank that caught it. Um, the, the bank caught it. Got it. Okay. So there's quite a number of questions that come to mind because um, if, from a wholesaling standpoint, you get a rock solid deal and all you're thinking about is how much you want to make, how much your buyer is going to make. If you think through the experience, what safeguards do you think a wholesaler can put in place to avoid this type of, of, of issues? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, this was a, a hot topic, right? I mean, it was on market, off market. And I remember even uh, speaking with the investigator and he was telling me they had about, I think about eight and eight or so cases. Half of wow. them were on market deals and half of them were off market deals. On the MLS, even though that happened on the MLS? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, because... Yeah, so this so I guess like the, the question would be... Go ahead, so I sorry. guess the question would be... Uh, I'm sorry to cut you, but I guess the question would be, in addition to the initial question I asked about, you know, how you know wholesalers could prevent this, the ones that happen on the MLS, you know, how would you think a realtor could also prevent this? That's a great question. I mean, it's going to be pretty similar. I mean, one thing is, of course, is validating IDs, right? Grabbing IDs from sellers, especially if you're dealing with someone virtually, right? You get a yep. phone call. I know I've heard some wholesalers doing a lot of virtual wholesaling these days, right? So you want to get that ID, right? I think the other thing too is meeting them in person at the property is really important, right? Going through the home, seeing if there's family pictures of them up on, on the, in the house, um, yeah. hopefully not the tenant, right? That's misrepresenting. Yeah. I'm just saying like you, you kind of get a feeling whether this is, this home is, um, is, is, is what uh, is the seller saying who they are. Um, yeah. One of the other things too is, pulling title on property to yep. see what what is registered against the property because in many of the cases these were mortgage free homes Got so it. Okay. it would require less to less to sell right there's less steps involved to clear a mortgage uh, so in that case that's another red flag is like okay and then the other red flag is okay how when you have to why do you have to close so quickly right yeah, but in our world, DG, right, in especially the wholesale, there's a exactly. lot of people that are depressed. It's sellers. also it's about quick closing, right? So it's like, okay, yeah, quick close, quick close, quick close. So it's <laughs> exactly right. So that's the thing too, and the, and the other thing too is like, who are you dealing with, right? So again, going back to what I said is like, if you're dealing not dealing direct with the seller because of a circumstance, you've got to then do additional documentation search. So if I can go back to that Markham property for a second, which by the way was a real deal. But yep. these are some of the red flags that stood out for me. Number one was um, the quick close, yep. right? Number two was the fact that it was through a power of attorney. The power of attorney was selling on behalf of a person that was on their deathbed at the hospital. Well, okay? okay. That was the story. And it was true, but still, yep. you never know. <laughs> no, no, number three was like, it was an empty home, completely empty, mortgage-free, as I mentioned. All these, <laughs> all these red flags. Okay, I need to ask how you went through a fraudulent situation two weeks prior and still had the confidence to go through this two weeks after. Yeah, so uh, it was like literally less than a week closed. So I spoke with my lawyer, again, having the experience with the fraud, just like you said, two weeks prior. And I said, okay, what's my safety net here? They said, your yeah. safety net is as long as you have title insurance, you'll be okay. Yeah. I said, can we make sure of that, that they're not going to pull the title insurance for any sort of technicality, right? Yeah. 
And uh, so in that case, that's what we verified. We said, hey, we will get title insurance. So at least you have a safety net there in case something happens. The only downfall will be is that you'll take some, if this, if let's say something did happen, it would take some money time to recover. You're not going to get a check the next day. It's going to yeah. take some time to go through do, uh, the proper process. Okay. So the title insurance uh, protects the buyer. Um, in the experience that you had, what protects the wholesaler in that instance? Because if that deal falls through, I would imagine that the wholesale deal or the wholesale fee falls through as well, right? Because the buyer gets their money back through the top the title insurance, but what happens to the wholesale fee? Well, in my instance, uh, we just mutually agreed to give reverse the whole transaction, right? So whatever okay. wholesale fee was involved was returned. Uh, simple as that. Uh, there wasn't any sort of, um, mis- you know, that's we just honored the, the, the transaction or reversing the transaction. So, yeah. And that would make sense because it, like, it's not a valid transaction. So there isn't any fee to be made, you know, when you think about it that way. So, it's actually a fair decision to actually do a full reversal. So in that case, the the fake sellers would obviously be arrested, the deal is reversed, and then you get all your money back. Um, would you typically get all your money back, or like does the bank still take their fees? Because the bank always wants to take their fees. <laughs> um, yeah. So from my the experience I saw was that the insurance would cover. Those sort of things. I mean, after going through the process, yes, that they would essentially compensate for out-of-pocket costs. So I'm okay. talking about land transfer tax. I'm talking about you know, the the uh, potentially the interest charges and whatever the bank was charging. It's like as if they're trying to reverse the entire transaction, like it never happened. Got it. Okay. 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 All right. Cool. So if you could summarize, um, at least from a buyer standpoint. You want to ensure that there's tightened insurance to protect the buyer. Worst case scenario. In a case when you are buying firm, at that point in time, are you buying firm with the condition of the tightened insurance or are you buying from up but you have the comfort level because you've spoken with your lawyer? You know, how do you essentially structure that where you know you are buying firm or you also need to get the tightened insurance to actually close this deal? In that specific instance, because the the two were so close to each other, um, when I spoke with the wholesaler um, who understood my concerns and I had a great re- relationship with them, um, I actually made a conditional upon satisfactory title insurance. Okay, I was they, ask they, that. Really, they understood it because that same wholesaler had a separate incident, completely separate from myself. Uh, uh, with a case of fraud and totally understood where I was coming from. Yeah. So for me, I would 100% be okay with that. Like, ideally, when you're signing a deal, you always want the deal to be clean, firm, you know, no conditions whatsoever. So you just go back and say, okay, it's, it's assigned and, it, and it's, it's moved forward. But I actually would be okay if I know that, you know, the buyer is going to be protected. It's a firm deal, but as long as the title insurance is gotten, if something fails on that end, then I'm more than happy to have the transaction be reversed. Um, okay, so that's actually quite interesting. Um, yeah, so we're yeah, that's, that. that's why it's so important to deal with people who have integrity, right? What I mentioned earlier, right? Everyone just said, "Hey, yeah, let's reverse everything." No one was saying, "Oh no, deal's done. I'm keeping my my fee, and that's <laughs> it." <laughs> that didn't happen. Everyone just said, "Hey, let's just reverse this and uh, and move forward." Yeah. 
I haven't had this transaction happen to me where you know there was a fraudulent issue, but um, I can almost imagine you know that it would be a painful conversation to have where you thought you were making a certain amount, um, especially if you didn't know that it was a fraudulent transaction. You're like, oh wow, I just made six figures on this wholesale fee, and then all of a sudden, you know, you call and say, hey man, um, there's something happened. I'm like, Damn. <laughs> But you know what, DG? I'll tell you something, DG. If you're doing a lot of deals, okay, yep. expect something to happen. Right? It's going to happen. It's just a law of averages. If you do one or two deals a year, chances are probably not. But if you're doing quite a few, you're bound to come across something like that or similar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so, you know, the last couple of minutes that you and I have been speaking, you know, you've, you've walked us through like 10 plus years of experience. You've walked us through like um, an insane deal. You walked us through like uh, the, the negative issues, fraudulent issue. If you wanted to condense, compress your 10, 11 years of investing in real estate into um, an advice, you know, what would be that advice to wholesalers who are starting out, um, how do they work with buyers? You know, how do they present themselves as credible in this new market? Um, what would that advice be, given your experience? I how think many the most important thing, honestly, DG, for any any business owner, any wholesaler, any investor, is the word consistency. Okay, what I mean by that is be consistent in the way you deal with people. Be consistent with the way you approach your business. Be consistent in the activities you do to generate business for yourself because you're going to have a lot of ups and downs. Real estate is a cyclical business. And you may yeah. find sometimes where you're doing everything possible and it's not going your way. And, and other times you're doing everything possible and it's going r your way, right? But it yeah. becomes so discouraging when it doesn't necessarily. And I've been there yeah. before. So what I can say is like being consistent in what you're doing will separate you from everybody else in the long run. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's really important. The other thing too, I would say is like as a flipper, one thing I've learned is like, think of the worst case scenario and how you can manage it so that you don't have to make hard decisions. Yeah. So for example, like when it comes to flipping, I've been, I've, I've had experience before where I've been caught in a market cycle and I had to hang on to that property longer than I wanted to, but I didn't have to make a hard choice of selling it for a loss. I could hang on to it and then just rent it out, for example, and then later on sell it in the future. There are some people that put their eggs in one basket and all of a sudden they can't make the payments on, a, let's say, on a private loan uh, and then find themselves in a situation where they have to make some really tough decisions. Yeah, so okay. that's the other thing, too, I can probably suggest from a flipping perspective. And do you find that because you've been in the space for about 10 years, you've built experience credibility, you've built a reserve, you know, you have a portfolio in place. Do you find that it's, 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 um, it's easier to take those risks or you are well structured or, you know, you have a lot more buffers to be able to take those risks versus flippers that are coming to the market? Like, um, what would be your thoughts on that? I mean, there's always going to be a risk, right? So, whether you're one flipping only one property and that extends you, if you do like 10, um, yeah. you know, that, that same risks exist. So what I'm trying to say is like, like right now, for example, I've got about four in four flips on the go at different stages. Yeah. Right. And I think that's going to be my limit. 
Like I don't, I feel that that from a resource, from a risk perspective, that I don't want to go beyond that because um, let's just say if it doesn't go well, there's a change yeah. in the cycle. I'll be forced to make some hard decisions. I don't want to do that necessarily. Got it. Got it. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, he does. He does. So essentially, just understand your risk level, your risk tolerance. Just know what you're willing to do. Yeah, it's kind of a cliche statement, but it's all true, right? Manage your cash flows, manage your risk profile, manage your resources and to see, okay, can can you, in case of a downturn, what would that situation look like? And because like I like I like to get you know a good seven hours of sleep if I can every day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interrupted <laughs> with the stress of real estate. Hopefully, <laughs> cool man. Okay, um, you know I can't even tell you how fantastic this episode was. So thank you very very much, Tom, for sharing your wealth of experience. I think you've provided quite a, a lot of insightful, um, you know. Nuances are, and I'm just mind blown because I know quite a number of these conversations are not usually had, and it's, it's it's a very interesting perspective, you know, hearing from someone who has been investing in the game for about a decade, and you've also invested across the multiple cycles, right? Um, you know, versus the new new investors who have only seen either the up cycle or the down cycle. So thanks for thanks for sharing. Now, before we let you go, Tom, there's a question we ask everyone on the show. Um, and that, that is for you to tell us what your greatest L in real estate is. And I know we've had, you know, this conversation, you've shared a lot of L's already, but um, if you have one that sticks out, you know, one that comes to mind that you feel you've gotten your best learnings from. Yeah. So, so DJ, I've, sh- I've shared with you like a lot of um, different experiences and you'll always learn from something at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, I'll share with you kind of one that I recently experienced. So I bought a home in Hamilton to flip. It was uh, back in the heat of 2021. And I remember I was like chasing deals. I, I was, I actually just came off selling another property and I said, okay, I got to put that money back to work. And that was probably the first mistake is like chasing deals, right? Looking for an opportunity that probably isn't there. So yeah. this one came, came to my attention. I remember it was up North and I was like, well, I can't make the, see the property. So um, I'll buy it sight unseen. And I've, and I've done that many times, but yeah, <laughs> This, this one here, I, I don't know. I didn't know the area especially well. It was in Hamilton, um, a part of Hamilton I was not overly familiar with. But I said, okay, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Sure enough, buy it off market, um, five hundred forty grand. And uh, one thing I, when I went to go visit it finally before it closed in March, was there's sometimes you don't, you can't see everything in photos and videos. And and one of the things you can't is smells, right? This place was filled with cat pee, cat poo, I mean, everywhere, on the floors, on the stairs, in the floorboards, in the ducts, you name it. And and I'm allergic to cats, like big time. (laughs) Luckily, I'm not doing the work, but still. It was just horrible, horrible. And, I, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be like, yeah, I've been there, done that. However, this one was by far just, just really, really bad. It was not just an isolated area. It was completely throughout the house, you name it. So we decided to, of course, we're going to renovate it. Um, and when we started renovating it, we couldn't get the smell out. 
Whoa. So we, we, for example, removed the, the floorboards. We replaced some with the drywall. We were looking for different things to kind of get rid of it. And it just kept lingering. Like it was Jeez. so frustrating. <laughs> um, and we tried, like I said, everything. And sure enough, during that time frame, also the market changed on us. So I, I eventually put it on the market to break even. I got to sell for six sixty. Remember, I bought for five forty, but my break even six sixty. Truthfully, I don't think it's worth more than six hundred, if that. But I was not prepared to take a loss on it. I said, okay, let's rent it out. I was I actually at first said rent it out or do Airbnb. I was looking for any sort of exit that that would make sense. Um, long story short, is I I decided to rent it out to uh, a group of students that. Um, uh, we're going to Hamilton, which turned yep. out to be fantastic, by the way. But again, that smell kept lingering on. And, and finally, I think after the third air duct cleaning, it started to subside and, and go away. But, you know, what I learned from there, DJ, let's, let's go back to your question. What did I learn? Number yep. one was when you're buying properties, uh, sight unseen, know that market pretty darn well, know that kind of architecture that exists, because this was a 100 plus year old home. Yeah. And I wasn't overly familiar with that section of Hamilton, like I mentioned. Yeah. And the other thing, too, was, again, smells. Right. So you won't see that. You, you won't detect that, of course, on the photo. So now I ask wholesalers, what yeah, does it I'll, smell I'll, like? I was going to ask you that. Do you believe that the wholesaler should inform you, pre-inform you of, of, of a smell issue? Um. I think it's would be why I think it'd be nice for them to do that. I mean, I think in this case, it's not like they didn't. I think they they said it was ransacked with cats. I just didn't think like it would be that bad. Yeah, right? okay. it's the thing. It's like the extent of it. So I'm not faulting the wholesaler in this case. I, I don't think they did anything to misrepresent. It's just I didn't I didn't do my due diligence, and I accept that. Yeah, what I'm okay. trying to say. Okay? Okay. okay, but going forward, like I like I said, with some homes, I'm like, can you can you do me a smell <laughs> test? <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> okay okay um thanks a lot for that tom uh that was definitely a very very hilarious end to this episode so thank you very much for for sharing your wealth of experience and for also giving us a fantastic end to this podcast so that brings us to the end of this episode um where can people connect with you um, if they want to tom yeah, yeah. I'd love to connect with people. Uh, you can reach me at my office. That's in Mississauga. It's 905-568-2121. Uh, we've also, as I mentioned, we do help a lot of investors with the flipping process. So we've got a whole system on how to help experience and newbies in flipping and how we do it in our system. So we have this ebook. It's actually titled fliphomesgta.com. You can download a free ebook. And check out also some of our before and after videos on that website. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Okay. And that's it for today, folks. Thank you very much for listening to Tom, me, and the Deals Estate Wholesaling Podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And be sure to hit that subscribe and notification button so that you know when this episode drops and the next episode drops. Until then, remember, a daily day keeps scarcity at bay.